So when I was a kid, and we'd be playing sports usually, if we messed up, we had a rule that you could mess up one time. There we go. You could mess up one time, and if you messed up, you could have a do-over, right? Which was sort of a clean slate. If you made a mistake, you know, if we're playing basketball and you miss a shot, or you're playing pig or, or some other form of sports, and you mess up and you miss a shot, you get one do-over. It's like a clean slate. Uh, some adults, I'm told, who play golf still have that. We call it a mulligan, right? If, you, if you're swinging and you miss, you just have a terrible shot, you can have a mulligan. It's a do-over. It's a fresh start. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have that in life? Right? If we made a big mistake, if we really screwed something up, if we could just press a button and have a do-over, have a second chance, erase what's been done. Well, we can't. Right? We can't erase what's been done, but we can have second chances. That's what this whole series is about. We're, we're going to talk about how the, the Christian God, the God that Christians believe in, is a God of second chances. Now, while it's not a, a completely clean slate, a completely fresh start, we can't undo what's been done. We do have a God that gives us second chances. There is grace. There is redemption. There are second chances. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, <laughs> so, when I, we, when I was thinking through the series and talking about it with some people, we really liked the idea of the series as a whole, you know, because Scripture is full of God giving people second chances and giving people new beginnings and clean slates, so to speak, uh, and, and helping them overcome mistakes of their past. And, and because the Bible is so full of these stories, I was really wrestling this week, like, where should I start? Where should I begin to talk about God giving people second chances? Because there's all kinds of stories, right? And, and some of them are um, more clear than others. But, you know, pick a character in the Bible, and it's somebody that God has probably given a second chance to, that God has extended grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so I'm like, well, where in the world should I start? And so, uh, as is often the case, um, wisdom, the wisdom of God came to me through, from a familiar voice that sure sounded a lot like my wife. Fellas, you probably, uh, those of you who are married, you, you understand that oftentimes the voice of God sure sounds a lot like your spouse. And she said, well, why don't you just, you know, start like uh, the, the earliest part of the Bible, the, the, the very first story of grace and second chances. I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. So I'm thinking, so where, where's the first one? And I'm racking my brain and I'm racking my brain. Where in the world am I going to start about this story? And then I was, uh, my, my daughter, my two-year-old brought me a Bible and she's like, read to me. And I was like, well, okay. I mean, how, do, how is a father and a pastor, how do you say no to your daughter when she says, will you read me the Bible, right? Um, and so I open up the Bible to the very beginning. I'm like, oh, well, why don't we just start at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? There's a pretty good story of second chances. And what, and so it hit me like a ton of bricks. Okay, yeah, maybe that's a great place to start, right? The very first story of the very first humans in the Bible is a story of grace and a story of second chances, as we're going to see. Um, now, it's not important whether or not you believe that the story of Adam and Eve is literally true, right? It's whether you do or not, it's the point of the story that matters. It's what the story tells us about God's interaction with people from the very beginning. And that's the point that's going to be illustrated. So on the one hand, the story of Adam and Eve, as we're going to see, is a story of colossal failure. A story of people who, who had one job. 
and couldn't keep it together, right? It's a story of colossal failure. But on the other hand, it's a story of monumental grace and incredible second chances. So we're going to spend a lot of time today. I'm going to read a lot of scripture to you. I'm going to basically read to you almost two full chapters out of the Bible. Um, And I'll talk about it a little bit as I go, and I'll clean it up at the end. But really, I'm just going to sort of let the story uh, do its own work. And again, you don't have to believe it's literally true. You can if you want to. But but what I want you to get is the story, the point of God's interaction with his people. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, the very first introduction we have to the first humans in the Bible. As usual, we'll put the text up here on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 begins, Then God said... Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. It's a pretty good setup, right? God creates the first humans, the writer of Genesis tells us, and he gives them basically dominion over the whole world. All of the animals and all of the plants, it's all theirs to freely enjoy. Total freedom, dominion over everything. Well, almost. Almost total freedom. So we're going to move on now to Genesis chapter 2. Now, for a very long time now, readers of the Bible have recognized that the story of the first humans in Genesis chapter 1 and the story of the first humans in Genesis chapter 2 seem to come, seem to almost be two different stories, but they've been uh, in the Bible placed back to back together. And so that's how we're going to read them. So Genesis chapter 1 sort of gives a a summary overview. Genesis chapter 2 gives us a little bit more detailed look into uh, God's creation of the first humans. Uh, Here's how Genesis chapter 2 tells the same story. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So in other words, God creates this first man, gives him dominion over everything, total freedom except one thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil he was not supposed to eat from. Now, again, whether you believe that's a literal tree with literal fruit or that's a metaphor talking about something different is irrelevant at this point. But basically what I want you to get, he had one job. Okay? 
He had one job. Enjoy it. Take care of it. Don't eat from this one tree. Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. One job. Um, uh, so now we're going we're gonna to move on. He, he, the man is alone, according to Genesis chapter 2. He's alone in the garden. And God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Oh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. New technology. I'm getting there. (laughs) Okay. There we go. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the, flesh, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man now said, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt what? No shame. No shame. That's an indication that they were in right standing with God and one another. They hadn't done anything wrong. They, they were in, in perfect harmony and perfect unity with God and with one another. They were naked and unashamed. They were, there was total freedom among them. Nothing had fallen apart yet. Nothing had gone wrong yet. But then, those of you who have read the story, this is, you know, in the, in the movie, this is where you get the dun-dun-dun, right? They were, they were naked and unashamed, but then, you know, this is, you know, in the, in the story, this is where the conflict comes in. So we're going to move on now to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, again, it doesn't matter if you believe that this is a literal talking snake or, again, some metaphor to make a moral point. The, the, the point of the story is the same. Uh, we have this, this another character that comes in and starts to introduce doubt into the story, starts to get the, uh, Adam's wife to begin to doubt the very clear instructions that they, had be, that they had been given. So she responds to the serpent, and she says this, We may eat from the trees in the garden, But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, we could have a whole other series here on how she uh, added to to God's instruction and all that. But the point is is that she was very clear what the instruction was, um, and she's responding to the serpent that way. She knows what she was supposed to do, um, and she responds. The serpent responds to her and says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is shame. Their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. This is a metaphor to help them illustrate there was now shame. They had one job and they blew it. Colossal 
mistake. And the writers of Scripture later on, Paul writing the letter of the Romans, is going to point all the way back to this very mistake at this very beginning. And he's going to say that because of the mistake they made, all of humanity is now under sin, right? This is, this is a pretty big mistake, right? How would you like to have people reading about your life 6,000 years from now, about how your big mistake that now, because of your big mistake, everybody in the world is now under sin? This was a colossal failure on their part. They had one job. It was very clear. You can enjoy all of earth. Everything here is for your enjoyment and your benefit and your edification, except for one thing. Now, those of you who have had kids, you know that if you tell somebody that, you know, the one thing they can't do, what is the one thing they're going to do? They're going to do that one thing, right? Uh, if I tell you not to think about elephants, what did you just think about? Right? So, you know, this is just, it's, it, it's a part of who we are. Uh, but the one job that they had, the one thing, and it should have been easy enough, and they blew it, right? So the rest of the story picks up, and we see how God responds to these people. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Now, those of you who have had kids you, uh, or you know people, you know that oftentimes when kids make a mistake. They know they made a mistake. And when they hear mom and dad coming, what do they do? They run and they hide, right? Because they, they know that they made a mistake and they're, they're concerned about mom and dad finding out because there's that sense of shame and guilt alongside of it. Um, you know, or, or when you're in school, or those of you who had brothers and sisters, like if, you're, if your sibling did something wrong, and then mom and dad showed up, you're sort of like, ooh, you're going to be in trouble, right? That's you know, sort of what, what, we see going, what we see going on here. It's, uh, the, the language is sort of this picture uh, of children with, with a parent showing up um, is sort of what we see here. Uh, even at a very young age, kids understand when they've done something wrong causes them to hide. So I love what happens next. I just love how the, the author uses this language of like a parent. Um, but the Lord called to the man... Where are you? Right? Um, uh, you, you guys know, you've had kids or you've been a kid, right? Kids aren't very good at hiding, right? Sometimes uh, the, the parent knows exactly where the child is, right? But wants to give them a chance to respond. Like, hmm, I play this game with Madison all the time, right? She's right there. I cover her with a blanket. Where's Madison? You know, she thinks it's hilarious, right? Uh, so God knows where Adam and Eve are. He's giving them a chance to, to, to own up and to respond to what happens. So they come, out from, they come out from hiding. And here's how Adam responds. He says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Very natural, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that what we do? When we, when we make a mistake and we know that we made a mistake, isn't our first tendency to, to cover up? And to hide it, and to and to, and try try to keep it from people, right? And we, and we try to bury it and, and not let anybody else know what we've done because we feel the guilt and the shame. We we in a sense we know that we're we're naked. And and isn't it true that also that when we finally come clean and we confess what we've done, there's freedom and there's liberation because there can be openness and forgiveness. That's what's happening here in the story. Adam is is coming clean with what he did, and he's admitting what's going on. And and all of us can relate to this at some level or not. We know when we do something wrong, when we make a mistake, that there's this tendency to hide and to cover up and, and, to, and to shrink back in fear and shame. I love God's response. He says, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? No, again, God knew, right? I do this with my daughter all the time. She does something that she's not supposed to do, and I'll ask her the question, giving her a chance to come clean. Are you supposed to throw that on the floor? No. Did you bite your brother? Yes. You know, um, all this, giving her a chance to, to come clean because there is this freedom that comes with confession and then forgiveness. And, and so God, he knows that they ate from the tree, right? But he's giving them a chance. He's helping them along in their confession to come clean. Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to come from? Adam says, yes, daddy. No, he says, the, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now, on one hand, it almost seems like he's like blaming his wife, right? She did it. She did it first, God. Right? Those of you who have kids, you know that that happens, right? Oh, it was her. You know, they did it first. He told me to. She told me to. Um, when I was a, a, a little kid, I realized that if you pull the, the phone cord out of the phone jack, all right, most of you in here are old enough to, under, to know what that is. Those of you... you know, Younger, So it used to be phones would actually plug into the wall with a phone cord. Um, when you pull that out, if you touch it to your tongue, it gives you a little bit of a shock because there's a little bit of voltage in there. Um, and so my younger brother, who is about two and a half years younger than me at the time, he probably would have been about two, maybe three years old. Uh, I put it on my tongue and I told him to put it on his tongue. Um, this is while my mom was taking a nap. Okay, and so you can imagine a three-year-old getting a shock in the mouth starts wailing, just starts screaming because that, I mean that's shocking. Pardon the pun. So, what do you think I did? I hid. You better believe I hid, right? Because you don't want to wake mom up from her nap. <laughs> um, it gets worse. So she comes out. She sees my brother lying there. I'm nowhere to be found. <laughs> She sees the phone cord lying next to him. So she's like, well, what could have done this? So she takes the phone cord, and she's like, hmm, I wonder, because what do little kids do with everything? They put it in their mouth, right? She's like, I wonder. So she touches it to her tongue. Boy, was I in trouble. (laughs) She gave me a chance to come clean. Um... Adam is coming clean. He's not just blaming his wife here. He's admitting, he's telling the truth. His wife gave him some fruit. And he said, and I did it. I ate it. And he's coming clean. Uh, Then, the story goes on. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, you know, you could look at it as blaming somebody else, but she's telling the truth. And she's coming clean. What happened? The serpent deceived me. I got tricked, and I ate. And she comes clean, and she admits it. So God now is going to administer consequences for, for their actions. So he starts with uh, the serpent. God starts talking to the serpent. He says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or hatred or separation between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This has historically been understood as the very first promise in Scripture of a redeemer, somebody who will come and redeem what 
Satan had stolen from human beings. They, later on, the serpent was, was going to be interpreted as Satan, as the devil. And this has often been understood as the very first prophecy and promise regarding somebody who would come and undo the mess that Adam and Eve originally made. Uh, so after dealing with the serpent, God then comes and he deals with the woman. He says, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then he starts, he turns and he deals with Adam. To Adam, he says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Though painful, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since, you were taken, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now on the surface, this seems like pretty severe consequences. Right, All of a sudden, what was supposed to be a happy, joyful existence is now going to be mixed with pain and sorrow and labor. And the, the, the paradise that it once was is no longer going to be. But what was the original consequence that God said would happen on the day they ate of the tree? God said, on that day, you shall surely die. So uh, what I want to point out here is that we're dealing with this, we're doing this series called Duo, we're in a God of Second Chances, but what I want to point out is even from the very beginning, we see that our actions do have very real consequences, right? And I'm glad that we see this in Scripture. I'm glad that this, what we see here, comports with real life. We know that there are certain things in life that we can just never come back from all of the way. Right? There are certain decisions that we make that once you cross that line, you can never go back to the way it was before altogether. There are very real consequences from our action. But what I want to point out here is God did not strike them dead on the spot. God did not strike them dead on the spot, even though the consequence for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was death. Now, there's a lot of debate, and you know, theologians will go back and forth over what God meant when he said, you, know, you will surely die on the day you eat of it. Um, you know, and I think, it's, we, I think we're on pretty safe ground saying that God's original plan and intention was that there would be no death, that, that the, the original humans, God's original intention was that they would live forever, and that through their actions, death was then introduced into the world, uh, in, introduced to humans in a new way. But they did not die on the spot. Now, maybe their you know, death was introduced on the spot, and, and death now came as a result. That's what Paul tells us later in his letter to the Romans. But they did not drop dead that day. And looking back, we see that that was grace. Now, what, what happens in the next verse, I think, is, is really interesting and encouraging, actually. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Now, if you remember, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, what was God's original purpose for these original humans according to Genesis chapter 1? It was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, right? And so here we see that even after their mistake... In a, in a way, now not in the original way, but in a way, they are given a second chance to fulfill that purpose. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become mother of all the living. So they still are able to live into that purpose of multiplication and replenishing the earth and filling the earth with 
life and progeny. So it's not like that their consequences, they were, they were given a second chance. It wasn't exactly the same way it was before. It wasn't without consequences, but it wasn't as drastic as it could have been because, as we see from the very beginning, God is a God of second chances. And I love what happens next in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, I believe that this is very, very significant. Right? When Adam and Eve made the mistake, they were the ones who realized that they were naked, and in their shame, they constructed a cover for themselves out of fig leaves. Now, again, whether this is literally true or just a metaphor for for the the spiritual truth, that's irrelevant. It was their shame that they tried to cover up. Now, there have been some theologians who have taught that this means that because they sinned, this was the very first sacrifice for sin, and an animal had to die to cover up their sins in order to appease God, because God is a perfect and just God who demands punishment for sin. But that's not what's happening in this story. God didn't make them skins for his own benefit. God was never offended by their nakedness. He was the one who made them that way. What we see here in God making garments of skin for Adam and his wife is an act of grace. God sees them in their need, in their concern, and he does something to mitigate that concern for them in a way that's going to last longer than their own way of covering it up. Skins are more durable than leaves. And so what we see here is we see uh, this represents, I believe, God's ongoing grace and care for these humans. What this, what this indicates to me is that God did not abandon these first humans at their mistake, colossal as it was. Tragic as their failure to keep his commandment was, God indicated by making them skins to cover them up, to, uh, to ease their concerns about their shame and nakedness, this indicates to me that God was now committing to take care of them. He was giving them grace and committing to take care of them All of their days. They did have to leave the garden. They had to leave the garden of evil. And if you read on the rest of the story, God explains why. Because for them to stay there and eat of the tree of life, it it would have led to some other consequences. So there were consequences of their actions. They did have to leave the garden. They, They did lose immortality that they probably had. They did eventually die. But according to Genesis, Adam lived 930 years. Now again, whether that's literal years as we understand years today or whether that's a figure of speech meaning a really, really long time, however, whatever that means, there, there was a long, full, prosperous life after their mistake and they stayed in relationship with God. How do I know that? In the next verse, in the next chapter, excuse me, they have a son and they, they name the son Abel uh, because God had given them, I'm sorry, they named the son Cain. They have a son, and they name their son, and they say that God has helped me, right? So they they believe that God was still in relationship with them even after their mistake. God did not abandon them just because they screwed up, just because they had this failure. And it was a colossal failure, and it did carry mistakes, but God did not abandon them. And he gave them a second chance to fulfill at least some of the original purpose that he had from them. Now, God would have been, it would have been right and just. He had given them the consequences. When they messed up, he could have called an end to the whole experiment right there, right? And said, this whole humanity thing isn't going to work out. But he didn't. 
He gave them a second chance. And from this point on, as we're going to see in the rest of the series, here's the bottom line that's going to carry us through. From the beginning, God has been a God of second chances. God has been a God that does not give up on his people just because they make mistakes. And I, and I promise you, there is no mistake that you can make that is more colossal, that is more tragic than the mistake that Adam and his wife made according to the story in Genesis. Right? There is nothing that you can do that is going to destine the rest of humankind for all of eternity on this side of eternity to sin and death. And even for them, God extended grace and mercy and a second chance and an opportunity to live into some of the purpose he created them. This is the kind of God that is revealed to us time and time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament and the New. We're going to see that God, even when people screw up just royally, God is there if they're willing to accept it and to take ownership for it with a second chance or a third chance, with new beginnings, chance for life. And this all culminates, as we're going to see, as we're going to celebrate in a few minutes in the life of Jesus, who we believe took upon himself all of the sins of humanity, giving us a brand new shot at a brand new relationship with God, newness of life in a way that it was never understood before. But from the very beginning of the story, from the very first story of humans in Scripture, all the way through the end, we see that God has been a God of second chances. So I don't care what it is that you think that you've done. You may think that no matter what, you may have killed somebody. Maybe some of you who are watching online, I don't know anybody in the room, but maybe. You, you, as we're going to see, there is nothing that can separate you from the redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ. No matter how badly you may have messed up, and maybe it was bad, and you know that, and you know that better than everybody, but the Christian God revealed to us in Scripture, most perfectly revealed to us in Jesus Christ, is a God who offers grace and forgiveness and second chances. And his arms are wide open, but he, he won't force it on you. Because he's a gracious and a loving God. His arms will be wide open. We'll see this in a few weeks as we revisit the story of the prodigal son. He's waiting with open arms for you to come back. So if you think that there is something that you've done that separates you, that if you think, oh, if, if you only knew, Thomas, how badly I messed up my marriage, if you only knew how badly I treated my kids, if you only knew the substances I put in my body, if you only knew how horrible I was to so-and-so or did such-and-such, you, you, you would just understand that there's no way that God could love somebody like me. And I promise you that no matter what you've done, it is not as colossal a mistake as the first humans told to us in Scripture. And even for them, God, as a loving parent, welcomed them, gave them grace and provision and a second chance to live in to a purpose. Now, I'm not telling you that, that everything can go back to it was the, can go back to the way it was before the mistake, because it won't. 
There are consequences to our actions, but there is redemption. And God can take even our worst decisions and our worst actions, and we believe that God can take that and even bring something good, even from our tragic, colossal failures and mistakes. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some communion. As we take communion together, I want you to remember that as we take communion, it is a memorial of the death of Jesus, the Son of God, who took upon himself all human sin. That what we see Jesus experiencing on the cross is the result of human sin. So human sin does have consequences. And we see that on the cross of Christ. What we see is God in Christ taking that upon himself so that we can be offered newness of life. So as we gather together, and, and we believe here that the table is open, we believe that, if, that, if, it, that Jesus welcomes everybody to his table, that his gift of life is extended freely to all people. So as you take the bread today, as you take the cup, I want you to remember, one, the cost of sin, because it's very, very costly, and there are consequences, but that those consequences were laid on Jesus for us so that we can have newness of life. And so as you take the bread today and as you take the cup, I want you to remember that whatever it is, that whatever that guilt is on your shoulders, whatever that shame is that you feel, that that has been laid on Jesus and you have been given an opportunity for newness of life and that you can let go of the guilt and you can let go of the shame knowing that we have a God of second chances, a God who offers grace upon grace, forgiveness upon forgiveness. And then because of that, I want that to inspire us to move forward in newness of life, to take seriously the cost of our sin, to, to commit ourselves to living in holiness now that we know the cost of our sin and we've been empowered by the Spirit to do so. So again, this isn't cheap grace, this isn't cheap forgiveness, this is forgiveness that inspires us now to live into the newness of life that God has called us. But as we take communion today, as you, as you take that bread, which represents his body, and you take that cup, which represents his blood, and the, and the forgiveness that that entails, I want you to remember that all of that, whatever you have done, was washed away by the blood of Christ. And that this God of second chances is your God and wants to be your God and wants to be your Heavenly Father offering you newness of life and a second chance. So Lord, I thank you for this story in Scripture preserved for us. God, I don't know whether it's a literal story of talking snakes or whether it's a moral story designed to teach us about how you interact with us. But I do know that, that in this story, you, you teach us that you are a God of second chances. You teach us that, that no matter what we may have done, you are there to offer grace and forgiveness. Father, I pray that for those who are experiencing the crushing weights of guilt and shame for decisions they may have made, that this series would help to take that load off of their shoulders, that they would learn to see that you are a God, not capricious and judgmental, but a God full of love and compassion and grace and forgiveness, just wanting and waiting with open arms to extend us fresh grace and second chances. And God, may that grace inspire us to live in a new way, inspire us to leave behind destructive ways of thinking, destructive ways of living, and inspire us to take on the image and character of your Son given to us through your Spirit. Fathers, we share today in communion, as we share in this bread and this cup, may we be reminded of your great love for us. May we be inspired to live 
and newness of life. We thank you, God, that you are a God of second chances. In Jesus' name, amen.